one. And um, as this being the first Sunday of Advent season, uh, we, we light these candles as they commemorate each week in Advent. So you'll notice we have one lit today. Next week we'll have two lit and, and so forth. It will go around. And then the white candle in the middle, that will, that will be Christmas. So we'll light that one for actual Christmas season. And so that's what's happening there. Uh, we love, I love the, the liturgy that we, we um, do as, as an Anglican church, and, and I just think that is absolutely beautiful to have that. So that's what's going on here. And during the Advent season, typically what, we are, what we're considering is the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ at Christmas. But we also take the time to consider Jesus' arrival at his second coming in the future, right? The word Advent, simply put, just means arrival. So we're thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ's arrival. Now, we have something very interesting happening today with this being the first Sunday of Advent. The lectionary is actually going to take us to the second coming of Christ first. So we're going to take a look today at his second Advent, his future coming at the end of time. And if you remember, a couple weeks ago, I preached from Mark chapter 13 about this prophecy that Jesus gave about the end. And it was kind of two parts. If you remember, the first was the end of the Jerusalem temple, which came to pass in 70 A.D. when the Romans sacked the temple in Jerusalem. And then I told you about the second part being the end of time when Jesus comes back. Well, today we're actually going to take a look at that particular part of the prophecy. Jesus is returning at the end of time. But we're not going to look at it in the book of Mark. We're going to actually transition to the book of Luke. It's the same event, same prophecy, just from another gospel writer's perspective. And so we're going to look at that from Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 33. If you have your Bibles, you'd like to open there, you're welcome to do it. If not, you can follow along. We'll have the text up here. It's not a very long, it's not a very long uh, text to look at. Am I missing anything in terms of announcements or anything, Pastor Drew? Okay, so with that, we'll, we'll go into the text this morning. We'll read it together, we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. And so beginning in verse 25, it says, There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And this is Jesus speaking. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. He said, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And this is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me, friends. Dear God, I do thank you so much for the opportunity to be worshiping with my brothers and sisters again this morning. I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to share truths from your holy word, from the gospel with your people. Lord, I pray that you would grant me, Holy Spirit, that with clarity, with conviction, I would be able to share your truths and that you would add to it, Lord, your effectual power so that it would accomplish in every heart and mind here exactly what you've sent your word to accomplish. As you have said, it shall not return void unto you, Lord. Maybe so this morning, 
Would you help us to be encouraged by the signs of your return? Let us be encouraged by even the thought that you are coming one day to take us home. May that be what comes from the words that you share through my lips today. Encouragement, rejoicing. Lord, would you be with those who are at home worshiping with us, those who couldn't be with us for whatever reason, Lord God. I pray that you are working in their lives so that they can be with us soon. Lord, we give you all the glory and the honor and the praise because you indeed are worthy, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. And so our passage begins this morning with Jesus talking about these signs that will accompany his return. And the simple thing to say about these signs is that they're terrifying, right? They're scary things. He says that things will happen in the heavens, meaning in space, the things, you know, the sky that we can see, and they'll happen on the earth. Things will happen with the sun and the stars. And he says that when these things happen, it will cause people to be perplexed and fearful, terrified even to the point that some people will faint. Some people will give way under the terror of what's going on. They'll fall out, pass out, whatever. It'll be, it'll be pressure that'll be crushing. It'll be that terrifying. He says that the powers of heaven will be shaken. In other words, the very universe will tremble. I recently heard about another uh, earthquake hitting South America, and, and to consider the ground beneath you shaking is one thing, but to consider the heavens above you shaking is another thing altogether. But Jesus says that these are the kinds of signs that would accompany his return. He says, but then we'll look, and we will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud in all of his great power and his glory. In other words, Jesus, this second time when he comes, he's going to come with a lot more glory, a lot more pomp and circumstance, a lot more majesty than when he came the first time. And not a single eye will miss it. We'll all see it. But here's the interesting thing about what Jesus says. Although these signs will be terrifying, Jesus tells us, that when we see them happening, he says, we should be encouraged by them. He says, straighten up, lift up your heads. Don't be terrified, but instead be encouraged. Now, that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, right? Terrifying things happening, but instead be encouraged, not terrified. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, especially if you come from the kind of churches that I came from growing up. I remember Easter of 2002, right? The first Easter after what happened on September 11th happened. And on the heels of that tragedy, uh, the pastor of the church I was at, he took the opportunity to kind of share about the end of time because that marked the end of time for him in his mind. And so he preached this sermon about the mark of the beast, the impending mark of the beast that's coming as prophesied in, in the book of Revelation, right? He talked about how the mark of the beast was this new human microchip implant that was coming out. And he showed a picture of it. And he talked about how, like the book of Revelation say, they were going to force us to put this microchip in our forearm or in our foreheads, like the book of Revelation say. And he said, if you refuse to take this chip, you're not going to be able to work. You're not going to be able to buy food to sustain yourself or sustain your family. 
If you refuse to take this chip, you and your family are going to starve and die. But if you choose to take it, then you, but you, you'll have the mark of the beast and you won't be able to go to heaven. You'll go straight to hell. To put it shortly, we were terrified. We were terrified. As a matter of fact, during this time, I was serving as an usher, as well as serving as one of the altar workers, where if you came to receive Christ, I would pray for you. And let me just say, including myself, I don't think there was a single person still in their seat during that altar call. We were all getting saved again that morning. Everybody. I think the pastor even put the mic down and got saved. We were all getting saved that morning. It was terrifying. The problem with this, brothers and sisters, is that I think that this is what the preacher was going for that morning. I think he was shooting for our terror. I remember him saying things like, if Jesus comes back right now and you in the club shaking a tail feather, you going to hell. <laughs> if Jesus come back right now and you losing your temper, you're going to hell. But that's not what Jesus says, right? Jesus doesn't say, when these things happen, start shaking in your boots. When these things happen, start, start, be, be terrified because you might mess up and go to hell, right? That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, be encouraged when you see these things happening. Why? Because our redemption is at hand. For the believer, brothers and sisters, the signs of Jesus' return should instill a sense of rejoicing, of hope, because our Savior is finally coming to take us home. The unfortunate thing, though, is I think that these fear tactics, when we talk about the coming of Jesus Christ, I think that these fear tactics are used because of a bigger problem. And I think this is the problem of works righteousness. I call it the works righteousness problem. It's the problem of believing that our salvation is based on how good we are at any given point. Right? How many good works we're doing or not doing at any given point. And here's the problem, brothers and sisters. This kind of salvation is a hopeless salvation. It's a fearful salvation, a terrified salvation. And if I'm honest, brothers and sisters, it's no salvation at all. The Bible teaches us that none of us are ever good enough for Jesus to save us. The Bible teaches us, brothers and sisters, that the reason we put our trust in Jesus is because we're not good enough and he is the only one who is. The only hope for any of us is that we put our trust solely in the goodness of Jesus and his sufficiency, sufficiency to save us. So that when he does return and he finds us in the club shaking a tail feather, which I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. Let every man figure that out for themselves. Or he finds us doing anything that we're not, we're not supposed to be doing. It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter because we were never trusting in our own goodness in the first place. It was never about what we were doing or not doing, but always about what he has already done for us. 
Now I understand, I understand that somebody here this morning, you may be asking the question, you're saying, Pastor Mac, it sounds like you're saying that it doesn't matter how we live as Christians. That don't sound right to me, Pastor Mac, that don't sound right. You may call me Father Mac. You may say, Father Mac, it don't sound right. And I appreciate you, friend. But if that don't sound right to you, that's good, because it don't sound right to me either. Okay, I believe and I believe the Bible teaches that the person who has put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's been saved by Jesus, will have his mind so set on God and his goodness and the riches of heaven that we will not continue to live like hell. I'll put it a different way. I believe that it is impossible to set our hearts and our minds on the things above and still live like we're from below. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus when we were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Brothers and sisters, listen. We don't do good works to produce our salvation. But our salvation will inevitably produce good works. I'll say that again. We don't do good works to produce our salvation, but our salvation will inevitably produce good works. But all of that to say this morning that while the world is fainting because of the terrifying things that will go on when Jesus is coming back, we are encouraged. We rejoice because our redemption is drawing near and brothers and sisters this redemption is reserved for everyone who has put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so we rejoice well Jesus goes on to share the famed parable of the fig tree and without going all the way into it the meaning of this parable is fairly simple it's fairly simple it's this know the sign Know the signs that will accompany Jesus' return. Know them so that when they happen, you will know that your redemption is drawing near, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And then at the end of that parable, he shares the second reason to be encouraged by these signs. He says this, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away. In other words, brothers and sisters, be encouraged because the promises of our Lord Jesus Christ are trustworthy. Be encouraged because the promises of Jesus are trustworthy. Now, I understand that here in this particular passage, Jesus is speaking primarily about the prophecies that he just laid out. Okay, about his coming back and before that, the destruction of the temple. But what he's also saying in these prophecies is the sure redemption of believers. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. I want us to focus on the redemption that we rejoice in at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You may have heard the saying or you may even have seen the bumper sticker that says, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Anybody ever seen that before? All right. For those of you who have and for those of you who haven't, it exists. Right. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. But I remember hearing a pastor one time challenge that saying and he switched a lot of, uh, he switched it up a little bit to say, God says it. That settles it. God said it. That settles it. And I think that's true, brothers and sisters, because what it what it says to us is the biblical truth that God's promises prevail even when we're struggling to believe them. God's promises prevail even when we're struggling to believe them. Now, again, and it might be the same person you say, Pastor Mac, Father Mac, if you're a reverent person, you say, Father Mac. Didn't you just finish saying that we are supposed to believe that we have to believe in order to be saved? It sounds like you're saying we don't even have to believe anymore. Pastor Mac, that don't sound right to me. Well, again, friend, I'll say to you, good, because it don't sound right to me either. I'm not talking about believing in Jesus here. I'm talking about the difficulty we sometimes struggle with to believe what we say we believe about Jesus. That's what I'm talking about here this morning. Sometimes it's hard to believe that we're forgiven simply because of Jesus. Right? Sometimes it's hard to believe that God loves us and requires nothing of us except what Jesus has already offered on our behalf. Especially when we find ourselves struggling with sin, struggling with unforgiveness, it's hard to believe that God will forgive us. I think we've all come to that place where we think that, God, you ain't going to forgive me this time. No way you'll forgive me this time. No way the grace and the love of Jesus is this big. No way the blood of Christ is this sufficient to forgive me this time. We all get to the place where we struggle to believe what we know we should believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. However, it's in those times, brothers and sisters, that we have to remember that our salvation is not based on how well we're believing that God has forgiven us. Because the entire time, hear me, brothers and sisters, the entire time that our sin and our guilt and our shame is proclaiming our condemnation, our God and our Father who loves us is declaring Romans 8 verse 1 over us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Doesn't matter how loud guilt and shame tries to proclaim condemnation, the goodness of our God whispers, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Hear me, brothers and sisters, the certainty of our salvation on that great day when Jesus returns will not be based on the strength of our faith but it will be based on the faithfulness of the one who is strong to save. Even our Lord Jesus Christ in whom we have believed. So if his word says that there is no condemnation, we can bet that there is therefore now no condemnation. If his word says there is no condemnation, brother and sister, there is now no condemnation. And for this reason, the day of his return is a cause for rejoicing for those of us who are believing in him. 
brothers and sisters, stand up. Lift up your head. Be ye encouraged. Because the signs are telling us that our redemption is near. And brothers and sisters, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that if Jesus said it, then our redemption is near. And here's the good thing. If we're trusting in Jesus, then that redemption is a sure thing. We can take it to the bank. Amen? Let's pray, friends. Lord, I thank you so much for your word this morning. I thank you so much for the encouragement that, Father, although this world has much to be terrified for, you've given us all the more to rejoice in. Let us rejoice. Let us rejoice because our redemption draws near and our redemption is certain. And let us tell the good news to someone else. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor and the praise because indeed you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.